I'd like just uh, ask a special word of prayer upon the Bible before we open it. Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit will again be here. We come humbly before you as children, confessing our inability to understand or present or apply the words that we're going to read and study. We don't even know where to begin. But Lord, we come to you as children, as students, before a teacher. We pray that your Holy Spirit will be here to guide and direct our minds and help us to learn just the thing, the things that will be a blessing to us and to others as we associate with them. I pray that what we learn will result in our harvest for heaven. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A number of years ago, well, in fact, when I began the path, uh, ministry, I uh, had read a number of statements where the minister is to train people how to win souls, and I took that as one of my burdens. And uh, I decided a long time ago, in fact, long before I uh, began the ministry, I was a little older when I began. I was 28. I'd been in the military and as um, conscientious uh, as a non-combatant. And uh, I had been through Loma Linda. I'd always been preparing for the ministry, always looked towards the ministry. But I wanted to become a minister to win souls. Of course, that's what... I hope every minister becomes a minister for. And I decided when I joined the ministry, I wasn't going to be a minister in order to hold on to a job or keep a job or to get a paycheck or to try to get a bigger church or a conference position or anything else. Because um, being a minister doesn't save anyone. And um, I want I want to do... I want to hear the well done spoken at the end. I don't care about hearing it now. I want to be ready when Jesus comes, and I want to see others ready. And uh, I have lived and longed to see a revival take place within the church so that Jesus can come. I've learned that there are three things. There may be more than three things, but there are three special things that I've noticed anyway that are real necessary for a revival to take place in the Bible and in the spirit of prophecy. We notice that we have to overcome sin before revival can take place. That happened at Pentecost. And we know it has to happen again. Um, and there's many statements on that. Evangelism, page, uh, let's see, 703 I think it is. Ellen White says, when uh, the Holy Spirit will be poured out upon everyone who is cleansed from every defilement of sin, I believe it says. That's 701 to 703, right in that section. I think it's 703. The second thing is that um, we have to have the straight testimony. Whatever that means, we have to have it. 
In early writings, page 270, she says, the whole destiny of the church depends upon receiving the straight testimony. And yet it's been rejected, she says. And uh, so whatever the straight testimony means, and of course we can't decide what it means, the Bible has to decide what it means, doesn't it? I suppose everyone wants to say that they're giving the straight testimony. Whatever that means, it's necessary in order for the Holy Spirit to be poured out. The third thing I've noticed that is necessary for the Holy Spirit to be poured out is that we must, we must, uh, we must learn to witness for the Lord. I appreciate that testimony that was shared. And, and by the way, the song too. That's beautiful. But we have to become witnesses for the Lord. Um, Christian Service, page 253, says that uh, the Holy Spirit will never be poured out upon the church until the majority of the church members learn to be laborers together with God. As long as the majority are not working with God to win souls, the Holy Spirit will never be poured out. And so we have made it a goal for years to teach people how to win souls because I've learned that as you win souls, that we ourselves are converted. We learn the truth. I tell you, you learn the truth as, in no, as, you, as you can't learn it any other way by, by teaching the truth to others. And um, we used to have, in fact, we've had as high as 60 people in our church learning to give Bible studies and win souls. But we found that a lot of people got discouraged because somehow the studies or whatever they're using weren't too effective. And I encourage people to make out studies of their own. That's wonderful. And yet not everyone is able to immediately sit down and prepare a sermon or, or make out a Bible study. You know, the Baptists may have done better than we do. They, they did write out some sermons. In fact, William Miller used to, when he was a Baptist uh, for a little while, read sermons. And he was converted in reading one of these sermons. In fact, that's where he started really studying the Bible and gave his heart to the Lord. It was from reading a sermon up front. He broke down and started crying. He was so touched. And I've never read a sermon in my life. But it's, uh, nevertheless... Sometimes, if um, uh, back in the Bible times they did, they revelation, they said whoever reads it, you know, is blessed. Whoever hears the reading is blessed. And not everyone can just immediately sit down and preach a sermon uh, that they make up themselves. And not everyone can just immediately sit down and give a Bible study that's logical and etc. So there's a place for people to make up Bible studies, and I encourage everyone to do it. But there's also a place for prepared Bible studies. And we just couldn't find any that seemed effective to us. Because as we started studying, and we didn't know why, but as we studied church history, we found that in the beginning, Bible studies, in fact, Ellen White says we are to teach people to work as Jesus worked. Christ's object lessons, it says the way he worked was through the personal interview method. He had a faithful regard for the one soul audience, and he reached people through the, what she says, the personal interview. That's the word she uses, personal interview. And um, as I looked in church history, I saw that when Bible studies began in our church in 1883, what was used was the personal interview method. And Ellen White says this was from the Lord. It's very simple. It's not going and asking people maybe a set of questions on their 
their children or their background or whatever, but it is asking them some questions that lead to truth on the Bible and then having them look up Bible texts. That's all it is. Having them, asking them something that they have to find the answer for in the Bible. Of course, you show them where to find the answer in the Bible. So we began to make up a series of lessons trying to help people to be able to ask questions, the right questions, in a logical sequence, and then to give the text to have them find the answers in the Bible. And um, I remember one of the first people I took to start studying with these, we had a number, but as we were preparing them, I took a young lady, she'd never won a soul, a very fine young lady, 22, 23 years old, and I was studying with another young lady, that's why I took her. I like to go two by two, and if it's with a lady, I like to have another lady studying with her. And so she'd never given a Bible study in her life. After that study, I told her I had to be someplace the next week and asked her if she could do it. She swallowed real hard. She didn't know. I said, well, let me, let me share how to give a Bible study. So we spent about a half hour and looked over some of the basic principles. I said, now you can do it. You just follow some of these principles. And she did. And, and it was another young woman she was studying with that had not been raised a Christian. And... Uh, she was, she was baptized. So she went out and studied with someone else, and she was baptized. And then she studied with two more people. And one of them was baptized, and the other started coming to church. I understand that she's been baptized now, too. This is only a couple, a few years ago. And so uh, I tell you, the young people in our church began to go out and give Bible studies. And when you get young people giving Bible studies, the older people begin to say, well, listen, if the young people can do it, we ought to be able to do it, too. And the young people's department just grew. So pretty soon, we were just Xeroxing them, but eventually, the General Conference uh, printed these, and we're distributing them. But um, um, Heather and Gordon have been using these studies, and they've been blessed, and, and we just have these to be a blessing. We'll show them to you after sundown, but I wanted to show them to you now, at least the studies, first little bit. These, and what made me think of it was... Um, What's your name? Letty. Letty. Mentioned in Spanish. She wished they had some materials in Spanish, and we've gotten these translated in Spanish now. They're not printed. They're in the process of being printed. They've been translated into um, Swahili and another language in Africa that's too long for me to say it. I don't remember. It's a long word. <laughs> but um, over in the Trans-Africa Division, when they got these lessons, in fact, almost as soon as they were out, they really fell in love with them, and they translated them, and I didn't even know about it till later. I got a letter. They had been using them for a while, and they had translated them and were using them. I got a call to be the ministerial director for Tanzania Union, and uh, they said, listen, we're using your lessons here. We print one lesson in every one of our missionary journals that go out, and uh, the layman and the ministers are using them, so I, I didn't even know that they had been translated. But um, we hope that we have these in Spanish within a couple months. We're working on that. We may, as soon as we can get them anyway. Now, somebody asked me if I would share uh, just a wrap-up from this morning on the nature of Christ and we have a big topic left. But um, let me try to review a few minutes. Let me first say the nature of Christ is like the foundation of a home. 
If you go down the road here, and I saw uh, either a remodeled home or a new home right down the street, it looks like they did a real nice job. I love the homes here in, in England. But, um, you know, when you go buy a home, you may not even look at the foundation. But you do hope that there is a foundation under the home, don't you? You may go in and you see the walls and the fireplace and everything. You see all of these things and someone who's not a builder might say, well, what, what's the difference if there's a foundation or not, you know, or what the foundation is like? I mean, the home is what we live in. We don't sleep on the foundation. Foundation's just under the ground. It doesn't matter. I mean, most of us know better than that, but, is, you know, somebody might wonder, what's, what's the difference? Now, while most of us know about building homes, at least that much about building homes, at least we've heard that you need a foundation, whether we build homes or not, and I guess Richard would know on that. When it comes to theology, there's a whole lot of people that say, what's the difference on these, these things? Uh, those aren't important. I mean, what difference does it make what you think about who Jesus was? What difference practically does it make in your life? Well, it makes about as much difference as the foundation of a home. You may not see it, but what happens is the, the theologians have taken the basic foundation, which is who was Jesus and what is sin. Those are the two basic questions. And we didn't have time to deal with this, what sin is. But sin is what caused the fall of man, of course. And that's what Jesus came to save us from. And so what is Jesus and and what is righteousness and what is sin? What is Jesus and what is sin? On these two questions, all theology is built. Now, you may not realize that because all we look at are, is the building that's already built many times. Now, it's all right just to look at the building that's built. You don't have to worry about the foundation if the foundation is good. A lot of us in the Adventist church have grown up with a good foundation. And basically, our theology has been basically safe for 100 years, over 100 years. But what happened back in the 18, 1950s was some men came along. Of course, it started even earlier than that. But with Jones and Wagner, it was headed off. And Ellen White wrote The Desire of Ages, and she just dealt with it over and over again on the nature of Jesus. And so um, it was headed off. But in the 1950s, some theologians arose, and I used to never use names. I still hate to because I love all these people, but sometimes if it can save a soul, I like to let, you know, be plainer. But especially a man by the name of, of uh, Heppenstahl began to teach a new theology in the Adventist church. He was the head of seminary, so he taught a lot of ministers, you see. And they came out with a book called Questions on Doctrine that a lot of people didn't realize what all was involved in this book, but... They were trying to uh, let the other Protestants know that we were not different than them, we were like them, and that we were not a cult, and that was the reason for the book. And after that, we weren't called a cult anymore because we believed the same as all the other Protestants on two key points, and that's the atonement and the nature of Jesus. And thinking Protestants knew if we believed the way they did on the nature of Christ, sooner, sooner or later we'd believe the way they did on everything else too. And uh, then arose another man that uh, really took uh, the teaching of Heppenstahl and he, uh, he championed it. And that, his name was Desmond Ford. 
Now, at the time, a lot of people were wondering, what difference does it make why these, you know, the, the Desmond Ford and Heppenstahl and some of these other people, they're really making a big issue on the nature of Christ. But what's the difference? Well, they knew what the difference was. And once they established the teaching on the nature of Christ and got it firmly established in the church, and what I mean by that, let me explain myself, what our church had taught for a hundred years, what Ellen White firmly taught, was that Jesus came down with a human nature like we have. Okay? Heppenstahl said, no, Jesus had not a nature like us. He had a human nature like Adam before he ever fell. And that's what Desmond Ford said. And so there were some people, like Andreasen, who understood and they got in an argument, you know. And uh, some, a few, a few, not just a few, say, no, Jesus had a nature like us. And other people say, oh, that's nitpicking. Listen, it wasn't nitpicking for Ford or, or, or uh, Heavenstall, but somehow it was for these other people. That's nitpicking. Just don't, don't stir the boat. And so Heavenstall and Ford, they kept teaching this and teaching this, and everyone says, what's the difference? This isn't a major point. They're great theologians, and they must know what they're talking about. Once they got this teaching firmly established in the church, and I want to tell you today, I would venture to say that at least 95% of the ministers in the church today, now I may be exaggerating, I don't know, this is a guess, but it's a calculated guess from talking to a lot of people. I would say that probably 95% of the active ministers in the church today who haven't retired, that probably 95% of them today believe exactly what Desmond Ford believed on the nature of Christ. And, uh, of course, they don't think they're Ford followers, but they are exactly. And, um, and these, these um, as soon as this was established, then Ford brought in all of his other teachings and just took the church by a whirlwind because the foundation had been taken out. You see, it's like this. If Jesus had a human nature different than we are, then he was not tempted like we were. However you cut the cake, he couldn't have been because temptation comes from within. And Ford very clearly taught that Jesus was never tempted from within. I mean, you talk about heresy. That was heresy, and it's heresy to most preachers today. Everything that Jesus was tempted from within. Only from without, like Adam was before he fell. That's the only way he was tempted, but not like, like you and me. Because that would be sin. Somehow Desmond Ford thought temptation was a sin, almost the same. He didn't see much difference. Of course, he believed in what's called the original sin. That's a whole new doctrine, uh, a whole new subject. Now, what Ellen White says is that he never yielded to temptation. Not even by a thought did he yield. But anyway, here's how, the, here's how it goes. Let's follow it. If Jesus was not like us, then, number two, we can never become like he was. And that's the whole point. You see, we can't become like he was unless he became like we are. I mean, if we could overcome sin with a fallen nature, we'd be greater than Jesus was. He didn't even do that. He only overcame it in a non-fallen nature, you see. And um, so there, I, I have never found anybody yet that's really thought it through who believes that Jesus had Adam's unfallen nature, who <coughs> believes that we can overcome sin. I haven't found anybody like that. Not any theologians, anyway, who's thought it through. 
It always goes hand in hand. Those who believe that Jesus was like Adam before he fell also believe that we can never overcome sin. It always goes together. And um, then, since we can't overcome sin, and um, Jesus' work it was not to help us overcome sin. What Jesus came down to do was to forgive us of our sins. It's called justification. So don't emphasize sanctification, because that's only a, a theory. But it's not. It's non-reachable theory. We can never really be sanctified. We are saved in our sins by grace. And um, first time I heard this, it was ten year, or twelve years ago, by one of our one of my fellow ministers. I said, "Well, what is going to happen when the time of trouble closes?" Oh, he says, we're going to go on sinning. I thought, no, that can't. I never heard of an Adventist who didn't believe you're going to be sinning after the close of probation. I never heard that. And I've been raised in the church. Never heard such a thing. I mean, that's fundamental to the teachings of the Revelation. But I mean, it was just natural to him. We'll never quit sinning till Jesus comes. So what are we going to do without a mediator? Oh, he says that we'll be forgiven just like those before Jesus went into the sanctuary back before he came down, he forgives us before we commit the sin. I thought, what in the world are we coming to? You see. But that's what's believed. That's what's believed. Believed all over. Now, dear friend, once you come to the place that you believe that we can't overcome sin, what you have just decided to believe is that Satan is, is the master of our life forever. And, that, and Jesus can't save us from that mastery. Jesus is just going to somehow save us anyway, but on this life, we're always going to be Satan's servant. And uh, that's an abomination. That's a terrible abomination. Sin is a terrible thing, and Jesus wants to forgive us from sin. And so you see, this thing on the nature of Christ, I'm not one who thinks that, the whole world turns on what someone understands the nature of Christ. I know there's going to be millions of people. I don't know how many people it's going to be saved, but I know there's going to be lots and lots and lots of people saved who don't know the first thing about the, these theological arguments. But I'm telling you this too. And that is, well, it's like this. There's a lot of people who's going to be saved who don't know half the arguments about Sunday and Sabbath. Don't know half the arguments. But you know, when someone has been deceived, you have to get down and deal with, with the nitty-gritty sometimes. And what's happened today is, 25 years ago, I don't really think it was, maybe it wasn't important that everyone understood about the nature of Christ because the deception hadn't come in so strongly. But today we're dealing with a deception that's entrenched within the church. And because the deception is here, it's, we need to know what the Bible teaches on these things or we're going to be deceived. Now, I wanted to go into a whole other subject that's, I think, just as important. We don't have much time, but for those who are going to be here tomorrow, maybe we'll go into it a little bit tomorrow, but I do want to at least get started. I'm not going to be following any notes that's not to my credit. It's just because of the time. But um, I'd like to see what we can follow. 
I have learned from my study of the Bible and history that there are two things that always go hand in hand. And I'm going to deal with something that may be even more touchy than the nature of Christ. Now, the nature of Christ, if you're dealing with ministers, you can't hardly do it, touch anything that's, that touches a, a sore spot than that. And I don't know why. People are, are even offended when you, when you share the truth. I can't understand. You, you can believe in Sunday and they don't care that much, but you, you deal with the nature of Jesus and say that Jesus came down like we are and all of a sudden you've, you've lit a bomb. You can't even discuss it rationally with most people. It's amazing. Uh, the reason you can't is because they don't have any decent arguments on their side. You know? But anyway, there's another point that's even, even touchier than that. In fact, it's so touchy. Some people have never discussed it at all. But it's something that Ellen White discussed lots and lots and lots. We read it, but we don't talk about it out loud very much. And that's this. I've learned that two things go hand in hand. And that is theology and administration. False theology and false administration always go hand in hand. True theology and true administration are supposed to go hand in hand, and usually do. False theology always leads to false administration. Now, as soon as you start dealing with administration, I don't want to use a big word, but we'll get down to simpler things here in a minute. But as soon as you deal with administration, somebody thinks you're being critical. You're looking at someone else. I don't have the least desire to be critical of anybody or anything or any what. You know, I have grown up, and I want to tell you as a pastor, um, I always tried to be democratic and different things. I tried. But I have learned, the longer I live, that when I began a pastor, as a pastor, I began with an awful lot of top-heavy authority, even though maybe not as much as some people. But I've learned it. I've been breeded, you see. That's the way, when you're the pastor, you own the pulpit and you own the church. And um, that's given to you as sort of a gift, and the people are your sheep. And... Um, so I have learned that uh, false theology and a false way of leading people usually go hand in hand. Now there's two kinds of administration. One was started in heaven. Both of them were started in heaven. One was demonstrated by Jesus and the other was demonstrated by Satan. Turn with me over here to Isaiah 14. It says, How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? Verse 12. How are you cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations? For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I also, I will also sit on the mount of the congregation, on the farther sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High, yet you shall be brought down to Sheol. Now, Satan began his administration with politics by trying to climb the ladder to some higher position. Now, he's already pretty high. The bad thing about politics is you never get high enough. Even when you're the top, you want to be the greatest one at the top, you know. 
It was enough in the Roman days to be a Caesar. You know, Julius Caesar, as great as he was, when he read about Alexander the Great, he started crying. He said, he did everything I did, but he did it younger than I am. So he could never catch up with Alexander the Great because Alexander the Great had done it younger than he had, and he wanted to be the greatest man who's ever lived, you see. Well, he named the month of July after him. The next Caesar came along, Augustus Caesar, and he says, listen, Julius Caesar isn't going to be any greater than me. I'm going to name him the month after me, too. He named the month of August after him. But August didn't have 31 days. And he said, it's not right that Julius Caesar has more days than I have, so he took some days from February and put it into August. <laughs> so you have two months back-to-back -back who have 31 days. Listen, there is, when you get involved with climbing the ladder, the political ladder, you are never, ever satisfied. Never. I don't care how much money you have, you want more. If you make a million pounds a year, you want two million. If you make 10 million pounds a year, you think you've got to have more. If you own one corporation, you think you've got to buy out some other corporations, you see. Satan was the highest being in the universe next to God himself. He still wasn't satisfied, was he? He said, there's one more place I've got to go. You know what? Even if he had reached that, which of course he couldn't, even if he had reached that, he still wouldn't have been satisfied. You see, peace is something that has to come within the heart. But once you get into a political climbing the ladder uh, mentality, which we're all born with, that's what sin is, uh, you are never satisfied. Well, this kind of administration came into the Jewish church. In the days of Jesus, the Jewish leaders looked at themselves as being in charge of the people. They were the head of the people. They weren't brethren. They were the head. And the people were taught to look at the priest as the voice of God. Now, when Jesus came along, he got himself into a lot of trouble because he never did that. Even as a boy, he got in himself into trouble. Growing up, in fact, even his mother confronted him. Here I read in Desire of Ages, page 84, that Jesus did not interest himself in the matters of the priests. He said from childhood he acted independently of the rabbinical laws. You know what his brothers thought about Jesus? They could see that Jesus, he was honest, had devotions and all the rest. But a few pages later here it says the brothers thought they were more righteous than Jesus because Jesus didn't keep the, the traditions, and they did. And uh, even his mother, it says, of the bitter, bitterness that falls a lot of humanity, there was no part which Jesus did not taste. There were those who tried to cast contempt upon him because of his birth, and even in his childhood he had to meet their scornful looks and whispers. Um, now I read the wrong, I want to go on here. That's continue on. Skipping down a little bit. It's page 90. Mary often remonstrated with Jesus and urged him to conform to the usages of the rabbis. Wouldn't that be a trial? Your brothers, you know, you're doing the best you can. In fact, he did perfect, you know, as far as his character development. His brothers, they thought they were more righteous than he because look at, look at him. He's not even following the priests. And his mother urged him, remonstrated with him, to, to start following 
the rules of the church and doing what the church told him to do. Well, as um, we find over in Desire of Ages, page 611, that this thing was inbred within the Jewish people, the leaders and the people alike, and even the disciples. It says the people were charmed with the teachings of Jesus, but they were greatly perplexed. They had respected the priests and rabbis for their intelligence and apparent piety. In all religious matters, they ever yielded implicit obedience to their authority, yet they now saw these men trying to cast discredit upon Jesus. And you know, most of the people of Israel, even though they believed that Jesus was the Messiah, would not follow Him because the priests did not believe Him. You know, it is amazing to me at how many Seventh-day Adventists will only listen, hear, or do what is approved by the church. It's the mentality of the priests, and it's the mentality of the people in Jesus' day exactly. And some people may think, what difference does it make? I want to tell you what difference it made in Jesus' day. The people who followed the priests were lost. That's what difference it made. Let me read you in Desire of Ages, page 164. Really, I'm hurrying on here. Maybe I should fill in a lot more, but I'm just going to deal with some of the highlights of this topic. And maybe tomorrow we can deal with it a little bit more in depth. I meant to take some time before I got into this to show you from the Bible the Seventh-day Adventist Church is going to go through. Seventh-day Adventist Church is God's remnant church. Now, I want to tell you I love this church with all my heart. I love it with all my heart. And I want to be 100% loyal to the church and to Jesus. But loyalty doesn't always mean blind following. True loyalty is, is when we surrender to Jesus and follow exactly what He tells us to do, isn't it? We listen to His Word. Now, when Jesus came into the temple, it says that the people looked... With, this is when Jesus cleansed the temple the first time. They looked with amazement on the works of Jesus and were convicted that in Him the prophecies concerning the Messiah were fulfilled. I'm going to read you the most amazing paragraph about in the Desire of Ages, at least I think. There's a lot of amazing paragraphs. But here at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, right at the beginning, this is the first time that he was in Jerusalem after he was baptized. At the very beginning, the people saw him and immediately the people were convicted that Jesus was the Messiah. The people were convicted. They believed it. They believed that the prophecies were fulfilled in him. More than that, they had some other things going for them. It says they were impressed. Well, let me. The people were comparatively innocent of the, of the sins of the nation. When Jesus cleansed the temple, the people were comparatively innocent. So here you have two good things. The people believed that the prophecies were fulfilled in Jesus, and they were comparatively innocent. The next paragraph sentence says that they were impressed with the divine authority of Jesus. They knew that he came from God. Um, they re but then there's a, a sentence that comes later that changes the whole thing. But, you see, they regarded Christ's mission as an innovative nation and questioned His right to interfere with what was permitted by the authorities of the temple. They knew that He was divine, but they didn't believe that even God Himself had the authority to change the things of the temple. Even God Himself didn't have that much authority. 
Jesus had divine authority, but divine authority wasn't good enough to mess with the temple. You know, I find people today that believe that God himself is dependent upon the leadership of the church and the church. It's amazing. They make God subservient to man like they do in the Catholic Church. That's what it was in Jesus' day. They believed that Jesus had divine authority, but even then he didn't have the right to question the authorities of the temple. And it says they were offended because the traffic had been interrupted and they stifled the convictions of the Holy Spirit. And they were lost. Three years later when Jesus came, they cried for his blood and crucified him to the tree. Three years earlier, they believed that he was the Messiah and that the prophecies had been fulfilled in him. But they didn't even believe that God himself, I mean, after all, it was God in the beginning that made the rod the bud and set out the priesthood and established the church of Israel. No one had the right to tamper with that church. It says over here a few pages earlier that um, they looked at Jesus. I can turn to it. I think I turned a little too far. They looked to Jesus... Um, as uh, they regarded Jesus as uh, a threat to the whole system, the Jewish system. I thought I knew right where it was. I can, I can find it maybe in a minute, but right now my eyes are slipping from it. That last page was 164, I believe it was and the desire of ages. And uh, over here, on, um, well, I have to find it a little, little a bit. I might give it tomorrow. Once in a while, I, here it is, page 111. It says that, uh, speaking of Jesus, that he who was the foundation of the ritual and economy of Israel would be looked upon as its enemy and destroyer. They looked at Jesus as a threat and as a destroyer of the church because he came around and questioned the way they were doing things, you see. You know, there are people today that even if you read some things from the spirit of prophecy, they think you're destroying the church because you read some things from the spirit of prophecy. They think you're destroying the church and you're threatening its integrity. Well, dear friends, I want to tell you the only security for the church in Jesus' day was to listen to the voice of the straight testimony that Jesus had to give them. That was the only hope. He would not have destroyed the church. He would have established it. It's the only way it could have been established. I want to tell you, the only way the church can be established today is to listen to the voice of God as it speaks to the church today. I'm not talking about my voice. I'm not the voice of God. I'm talking about any human. I'm talking about what the Bible says. What God says through the Bible in the spirit of prophecy. How the church should be run. How it should be organized. And I want to tell you, in reading these things, of course, I suppose we can read some things with a better-than-thou attitude and look down and, and criticize. That's possible. But it's not criticism to look and, and to pray and to plead and say, listen, it's time that we get ready for Jesus to come. We do what God says. That's not criticism, is it? Now, one of the chief issues of 18488, when Jesus intended to pour out his blessing on the church, one of the issues was doctrine, but one of the other issues, which was just as great, was that of authority. And after 1888, Ellen White wrote hundreds of pages 
dealing with this issue of kingly power within the church. And there are only certain people who had the right to preach or to teach or to write. And, uh, and dealing with the people, how that they had been taught to yield kingly, to yield uh, to their authority. I'd like to just um, take a little study. I'm not going to be preaching here. I'm going to like to do a little study. I'd just like to peruse through some of the statements Ellen White wrote after 1888 dealing with some of these things. And uh, just show you how thoroughly she, and I'm just going to be skipping from page to page to page, like in a class. This is sort of a survey here. I could read you one or two statements, but you might think I just pulled those out. So I'm going to read several, just read them through. This here is writ written in uh, as special testimonies to ministers and workers, she wrote. This can be found now in Testimonies to Ministers, page 301. And... Um, I've already skipped about 100 pages just like this, or 200 pages. But I'm going to start over here about in the middle of her counsels. She says, Men in positions should not lord it over God's heritage and command everything around them. Too many have marked out a prescribed line which they wish others to follow in the work. Workers have tried to do this with blind faith without exercising their own judgment upon the matter. But in the name of Christ, I entreat you to stop this work give men a chance to exercise their individual judgment. Men who follow the leadings of another and who are willing that another should think for them are unfit to be entrusted with responsibility. She says these people aren't fit to be ministers who just do whatever the conference president says or whoever else says. I want to tell you that's the only people that are left as ministers today. They have to call up the conference and say, hey, is it all right if so-and-so preaches in my church? or whatever else. We're told these men aren't fit to be pastors or teachers or workers in the church. She says a lot stronger things than that. She, um, continuing on a few pages later, she says, um, well, I have quite a few. I'm going to skip a few and get on. She says, Some Well, I'm, I've got about 20 here. The Lord has not placed any one of His human agencies under the dictation and control of those who are themselves but erring mortals. He has not placed upon men the power to say, you shall do this and you shall do that. But there is a power exercised in Battle Creek that God has not given. And he will judge those who assume this authority. They have somewhat the same spirit that led Uzzah to lay his hands on the ark to study it. As though God was not able to care for his sacred symbols. Far less of man's power and authority should be exercised towards God's human agents. Brethren, leave God to rule. All heaven is filled with indignation. Amen. What page is that? That's page uh, 347 and 348. I'm going to read a few more statements in a minute, but I want to comment on that just for a few minutes. When Jesus left the earth, he put the church under the authority of the Holy Spirit. And all of us were to be guided and directed by the Holy Spirit. Now there is a place for authority in the church. 
for true, for true uh, authority. But Jesus tells us what that is over here in Matthew 20. He tells us how he wants his church to be run. You know, some of the disciples came and they said, Lord, we want to be first. We want to climb the political ladder. And Jesus, in verse 25 says, of Matthew 20, he says, Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become, to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. I want to tell you, Jesus came down to draw men's hearts. The whole principle of the Bible is one of service together in love and unity. Now there comes a time when, when you know, things come in the church that need to be corrected. But I want to tell you, if we would look to the Lord, our Maker, as the head of this church, we'd find problems solved that no human beings can solve. You know, today we're trying to solve problems not only with authority from conference offices and from the pulpit. Many times we're going to courts to solve problems. You know, in Jesus' day, there was a man and a woman who came into the church and they would promised so much money. You know, the Holy Spirit took control and He cleansed the church. I want to tell you, the Holy Spirit is the only one that can cleanse the church. There comes times when there are cases like Achan where the church needs to decide and come together and say, and where we need to follow the principle of Matthew 18, and one go to someone who's committing an open sin, and then two or three, and then it needs to be brought to the church. There needs to be order in the church. But I want to tell you this climbing and striving for first place is destroying the church. And this lording it over people. God has, God has made the pastor of this church not to be the one who is in charge of the board meeting and the nominating committee and the pulpit and everything that goes on in the church. The pastor is made to be the servant of the church. And the conference president is made not to lord it over the pastors but to be the servant of the pastors and to teach them to look to God for guidance, not to always be calling the conference office asking them what to do. And to teach them to follow conscientious convictions, whether it's popular or not popular. It says the order of things, this order of things, she says, must change. Well, let me start a little earlier. She says, um, men who are not spiritually minded, who are not consecrated to God, have no commission to perform nor authority to exercise in regard to the willing or doing of their fellow men. But unless men are daily in communion with God, instead of seeking Him with all their heart for a fitness for the work, they will assume the power of dictation over the conscience of others. In 1888, one of the chief issues, dear friend, was that Jones and Wagner hadn't gone through the proper channels in their teaching. These upstarts from the west, wild west coast they're only in their early 30s. What right did they have to be coming and teaching something a little new and different? She says, is the working 
of God's of the cause of God to be entrusted to such hands as these politicians? Are the souls for whom Christ died to be manipulated at the will of men who have refused the light given of heaven? We should be afraid of man-made laws and of plans and methods that are not in accordance with the principles of the word of God concerning man's relationship to his fellow men. All ye are brethren, she says. And that was one of her favorite statements. All ye are brethren. The present order of things must change or the wrath of God will fall upon his instrumentalities that are not working in Christ's lines. I want to tell you in Ezekiel 9, we find the wrath of God is going to fall. It's going to begin at the ancient men in the sanctuary. She says, whatever you do, do not depend upon men or make flesh your arm. And she quotes from Jeremiah 17, verse 5, which says, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man, man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from God. Now you see, where things begin is by striving for first place and striving for authority. But it takes two. It takes two to make a hierarchical type system. It takes someone to strive for first place and it takes someone to to yield to that authority. The Bible not only counsels against people being gods, it counsels against people worshiping other gods. Now, Ellen White writes a whole chapter here called All Year Brethren. And she deals with the fact that we are neither to be gods nor do we worship other people who assume the place of God in running the church. She says, Strange fire has been offered in the place in the use of harsh words, self-importance, self-exaltation, self-righteousness, and arbitrary authority, and domineering, and oppression, and restricting the liberty of God's people, binding them about your plans and rules. Uh, From generation to generation. Well, let me start a little earlier. She says, I find no rest as I begin to write out these matters. The general conference is itself becoming corrupted with wrong sentiments and principles. I have been shown that the Jewish nation were not brought suddenly into their condition of thought and practice. From generation to generation, they are working on false theories, carrying out principles opposed to the truth, and combining with their religious thought, religion, thoughts and plans that were the product of human minds, human inventions were made supreme. She says they were, then she goes on to the people of Battle Creek after 1888. She says they were determined to bring individuals to their terms. They would rule or ruin. She says, holy principles that God has given are represented as the sacred fire, but common fire has been used in the place of the sacred. Plans contrary to truth and righteousness are introduced in a subtle manner in the plea that this must be done and that must be done because it is for the advancement of God's cause. But it is the devising of men that leads to oppression, injustice, and wickedness. The cause of God is free from every taint of injustice. It can gain no advantage by robbing the members of the family of God of their individuality or their rights. Prosperity will not attend these moves. No greater dishonor can be done to God than for one finite agent to bring other men's talents under their absolute control. Now, you know, we might say that this applies to American slavery back 100 years ago, 150 years ago, or whatever. 
But you know, Alan White was writing to conference brethren. She says, Satan's methods tend to one end, to make men the slaves of men. The high-handed power that has been developed as though position has made men gods makes me afraid and ought to cause fear. You know what the title of this chapter is? I'm reading in the next chapter now. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. My dear friend, this business of yielding to human authority is not just good Christianity. It's breaking the first commandment because God said that He is to be the head of the church. Now there's no place... There's no place for, God is not looking for, quote, independent people who will make themselves do whatever they want to do. You see, that's making a God of yourself too. God's not looking for people to stand up and say, well, I'll do whatever I want to do. And God's not looking for people to come up and say, well, I'm going to make everyone else do what I want to do. Either one. We are rather to get together on our knees in prayer and look to God our Maker and say, Lord, what do you want us to do? When it comes time for the nominating committee, we are not to be saying, Pastor, what do you want? That has no place. We're to be getting on our knees and saying, Lord, what does your word say are the qualifications for an elder and a a Sabbath school teacher and these others? Lord, what do you want? You lead and guide us, you see. When it comes to the Pope, and we're going to look a little bit more at that tomorrow. Well, maybe I better not get into everything because we will run out of time. But anyway, do we individually realize our true position that as God's hired servants, we are not, we are not to bargain away our stewardship? Dear friends, God has made us the stewards of His truth and of His church. And whether it requires persecution, whether it requires uh, whatever it takes, dear friends, we've got to be true to the Lord. We've got to be true to the trust that He has given to us. It's time, dear friends, that we weep and pray between the porch and the altar. She says this spirit of domination is extending to the presidents of our conferences as if a man is sanguine of his own powers and seeks to exercise dominion over his brethren, feeling that he is invested with authority to make his will the ruling power. The best and only safe course is to remove him. But I want to tell you, there's precious few people when it comes to a conference nominating committee that will get up and read some of these things. In their own human judgment, they devise rules and resolutions to force the wills of others. Rule, rule has been their course of action. Satan has had an opportunity of representing himself. Multitudes are being so deluded through their rejection of truth that they will accept the counterfeit. Humanity is hailed as God. God will not vindicate any device whereby man shall in the slightest degree rule or oppress his fellow men. He will thoroughly purge his floor. God has a controversy with all who practice the least injustice, for in so doing they reject the authority of God and imperil their interest in the atonement. The redemption which Christ has undertaken for every son and daughter of Adam, will it pay to take a course that is abhorrent with God? I plead, I appeal to my brethren to wake up. Unless there is a change that takes place speedily, I must give the facts to the people, for this state of things must change. Unconverted men must no longer be managers and directors in so important and sacred a work. With David we are forced to say, It is time for thee to work, O Lord. 
for they have made void thy law. Alan White says, if something doesn't change, I'm going to go to the people with this. There is a place to deal with this to the people themselves, dear friends. Great care should be given to teach every man his dependence upon God, for he is the source of all wisdom and power and efficiency. You know, going back to the illustration of the nominating committee, and that's only an illustration, there's many other things we could look at. I've always tried to teach my nominating committee. I said, don't do what I want you to do. I said, what I want doesn't make any difference. But I said, don't do what you want to do either, because what you want doesn't make any difference either. What makes a difference is what God wants. It's time to put away all our ideas and feelings and get down on our knees and pray and ask God to direct, because that's the only way we're going to find a revival. Dear friend, it is time that we hear a lot less about the church manual and a lot more of what the Bible says. It's time that we hear a lot less of what does brother so-and-so want or what does he want or what does the committee say. It's time that we say, what does the Lord want? What does the Lord say? She says, state conferences may depend upon the general conference for light and knowledge and wisdom. But is it safe for them to do this? Battle Creek is not to be the center of God's work. God alone can fulfill this place. Is the president of the general conference to be a God to the people? Say, that's pretty straight talking, isn't it? Pretty straight talking. Somebody says, my, this kind of counsel will lead to, will lead to, um, you know, all kinds of problems. Just everyone, it will lead to, uh, uh, what? Anarchy, yeah. It will lead to anarchy if we do this kind of thing. You know what? Following the Lord does not lead to anarchy. It leads to love and to unity. And when the disciples all became brethren, it did not lead to anarchy. It led to, the Pen- it led to Pentecost. Amen. And I want to tell you today, if we would follow what the Lord says, it would not lead to anarchy. It would lead to Pentecost again. Amen. She says, Are the men at Battle Creek to be regarded as infinite in wisdom? When the Lord shall work upon the human hearts and human intellects, principles and practices different from these will be set before the people. Cease ye from men. She's quoting from Isaiah 2.22. The Lord has a controversy with his people over this matter. Men are placed where God should be. I want to tell you, dear friends, if you want to be honest and you look over the world field today, we may hear some reports of all the millions and millions of people but I just, that are coming into the Adventist church, but I just challenge you to look around and say, is it really happening? Is it happening where you live? Is it happening within 100 miles of where you live? What's happening to God's work? Is it going up or is it going down? I want to tell you, dear friend, if you want to be real honest, it's not going up. And yet we have the power of the Holy Spirit to finish the work on earth. Souls are at stake. But people are afraid to say anything because somebody might get agitated, might get excited, and they might not ever be invited to speak anywhere again. And if they're in conference employment, they might get fired. Well, so be it. It's time for the work of the Lord to finish. Amen. I want to tell you, dear friend, it is time for the power to return to Israel. Amen. But it will never be until we all become brethren again. Amen. Whether we be conference workers or self-supporting workers or laymen or ministers, We're all to get in the harness together. And that doesn't mean that one rules and everyone else obeys. 
means that we all work together and make decisions together and let the Lord rule. It says, just as soon as man is placed where God should be, he loses his purity, his vigor, his confidence in God's power. Moral confusion results because his powers become unsanctified and perverted. He feels competent to judge his fellow men and he strives unlawfully to be a God over them. I'm telling you, when I read these things, I can hardly believe that Ellen White wrote them. But they're there. Just as plain, these aren't my words, dear friends. These aren't my words. I'm just reading to you what the Holy Word says. It says, but there must be no self-exaltation in the word of, work of God. We're not to go up and say, listen, I'm going to run things now. I don't need to listen to my pastor. Listen, it's just as wrong for me to run things as my pastor to be running everything. Isn't that right? God isn't looking for just a change of administration. He's looking for a different administration. You see, when the Protestants came along after the Dark Ages, they said, well, the Catholic Church isn't the trunk of the tree. But you know what they did? They decided, we're the trunk of the tree. But the Bible says that God is the vine and that we're the branches. Let me entreat our state conferences and our churches to cease putting their dependence upon men and making flesh their arms. I want to tell you, friends, it may not be popular, but there's not a church here that's going to, ex to experience the power of God in their church until the church becomes dependent upon God and less dependent upon men and the conference and the pastor. I didn't say not to respect the pastor. We should respect everyone. We should try to draw everyone in love. We should pray for one another. But I want to tell you, we must individually become accountable for our votes in the board, for our Sabbath school teaching, for our votes in the church, on the nominating committee, for our work and all there is. We must realize that every person's vote is as, is as important as the pastor's vote or the president's vote. And the church must no longer be told what they're to do and not do unless it is based on God's word. Let me entreat our state conferences and our churches to cease putting their dependence upon men and making flesh their arms. Look not to other men to see how they conduct themselves under the conviction of truth or to ask them for aid. Look not to men in high positions of responsibility for strength for they are the very men who are in danger of considering a position of responsibility as evidence of God's special power. Our churches are weak because the members are educated to look to and depend upon human resources. Dear friend, I just asked you this question. Are they weak or are they not weak? I want to tell you they're so weak they're shriveling up and dying. Well, men have supplanted God's plans for their own plans. I have too many markers in here. That's the only problem. Um... Well, I want to read a few other things. I don't know where to quit because I don't remember which markers I haven't read, but let me uh, hurry on. In the weakness of human judgment, men were gathered into their finite hands, the lines of control, while God's will, God's way, and counsels were not sought as indispensable. Men of stubborn iron-like will, both in and out of the office, were confederating together, determining to drive certain measures through in accordance with their own judgment. That's what was happening in Battle Creek. 
That was happening in, the, in 1888. Um, well, I entreat every one of you to read Testimonies to Ministers Through. Almost the whole book deals with this subject. Here is a chapter that Jehovah is our king, not man, not presidents, a whole chapter on that. The next chapter is on individual responsibility, how God has made us individually responsible. And um, if we don't honor this responsibility, she said a spirit of authority is not to be exercised even by the presidents of the conference. She deals with this over and over again. For position does not change a man into a creature that cannot err. In our several calling, there is to be a mutual dependence on one another for assistance. The conference presidents depend upon the members as well as each other, everyone is, to work together but not to dominate. In 1901, things came to a head. Things were not repented of in 1888. And Noel and White wrote council after council. She said, you've accepted all these councils and you can't come, have come to believe them, but no change has been made. In 1901, she got up in the General Conference and she said that everything has to be changed or God is going to remove the candlestick out of its place. That's pretty serious talk. She said, God's judgments are soon going to fall. And so she began to speak. She said, I don't want to speak today. I'm reading from, uh, this is a, a, a verbatim, uh, her verbatim remarks, the 1901 General Conference. And this can be found now in the unpublished manuscripts collected by Spalding again, beginning on page 162. She says, what I'm going to say isn't going to be understood by people. But she says, I'm going to speak anyway. She said, it has been expressed over and over again. Uh, well, let me skip down a little bit. She says, never should one mind or two minds or three minds or four minds uh, rule, or a few minds, I say, be be considered of sufficient wisdom and power to control and mark out a plan and let it rest upon the minds of one or two or three in regard to this broad, broad field that we have. We are not coming up to reach that high standard with the great and important truths that we are handling that God expects us to reach. She says there are minds which must be brought into altogether more lively action than they are at the present time. And in reference to the conference, it is repeated over and over and over again that it is the voice of God, and therefore everything must be referred to the conference and have the conference voice in regard to permission or restriction or what shall be and what shall not be done in the various fields. Now from the light that I have, as I was pre it was presented to me in figures, there was a narrow compass here. There was within that narrow compass a king-like kingly power rule, ruling. Here the outlets were blocked and the work all over the field demands an entirely different course of action than we have had. We have heard enough abundance about everything going on in the regular lines. I'm telling you today, everything is said, listen, everything has to go through the regular lines, the tithe, the work, the appointments, the speaking, everything has to go through the regular lines. She says, we've heard enough in abundance of that. She says, the work is being blocked and God isn't blessing. She says, uh, and here she gives the evidence. <laughs> And then the comparison that has been presented to me is where are the fields that have been opened over the last four years, few years? Where are the fields that have been opened here? The new fields in America. Where is it in California? Where is it in the great heart of the work? And here are the two great centers. Where is the wrestling to get into new fields? 
Do you know the amazing thing, dear friends? Is that during the 1890s when she was talking about, she says, where is the new work? We were only growing by about 10% a year. Today we're shrinking in many parts of the world. She says, there's no evidence of God working. We're not growing. I want to tell you, we're growing a lot faster then than what we're growing now. A lot faster. Well, she says, to have this conference pass on and close up as the previous conferences have done with the same manipulation, with the very same tone, the same order. She says, God forbid, God forbid, brethren. He wants every living soul that has a knowledge of the truth to come to their senses. He wants every living power to arouse. And yet we are just about like dead men. Well, she continues on. In this chapter, I counted once, there's about 11, maybe it's 13 times, I forget, that she talks about the kingly power that is being exercised. And then she says, now the Lord wants His Spirit to come in. He wants the Holy Ghost to be the King. Well, I don't guess I have Time to read one much more. Article goes on and on. The next article is, talks about the same thing, the regular lines. And she says, Phariseeism in the Christian world today is not extinct. The Lord desires to break up the course of precision which has been so firmly established. Divine wisdom must have abundant room in which to work. It is to advance without asking permission or support from those who have taken to themselves a kingly power. In the past, one set of men have tried to keep in their own hands the control of all the means coming into the churches. It has been left to a few supposed kingly minds to say what fields should be worked and what fields should be unworked. God calls, she says, for years the same routine, the very same regular way of working has been followed. God calls for revival and reformation. The regular lines have not done the work that God desires to see accomplished. Let every yoke be broken. Let men awaken to the realization that they have an individual responsibility. Amen. Say, dear friends, these things need to be preached in every pulpit of the land. She says, the Lord had blessed, blessed the work that J.E. White has tried to do. That was supposed, but doing the south. God grant that the voices which have been so quickly raised to say that all the money invested in the work must go through the pointed channels of Battle Creek shall not be heard, she says. The people to whom God has given His means are amenable to Him alone. It is their privilege to give direct aid and assistance to missions. It is because of the misappropriation of means that the southern field has no better showing than it has today. I do not consider it the duty of the southern branch of our work and the pu publication and handling of our books to be under the dictation of our established publishing houses. And if means can be devised to reduce the expense of publishing and circulating books, let it be done. So things don't have to go through our publishing work. Things don't have to go through our conference. We are amenable to God alone. Amen. Now, as I say again, God is not looking for everyone just doing his own thing or her own thing. No, God has called for us all to be brethren. To get in the harness together 
and to let the Holy Ghost to be king. Do you think that God is able to run this church? Do you think that He's wise enough? Do you think He's intelligent enough? Do you think He has the ways? Do you think His eyes are closed and His ears are shut? Or do you think that He is able to today direct His, his messengers and direct His work? Now you know in everything that we study, we must study Scripture with Scripture, everything. We must not take anything out of context. God has a people and He has a work. We find in Acts 15, we'll study about that a little bit more tomorrow, that many times the workers came together for counsel. I want to share with you in closing the kind of counsel that God is looking for today. Back in 1848, when Ellen White was still alive, of course, just beginning our ministry and had already been called as a prophet, we began to realize that the Sabbath was important, but everyone had different ideas. Some thought it should start at 6, and some people start, thought it should start at 12, and some people thought it should start, not very many, but there was a couple that thought it should start at sundown. And they had all different kind of ideas of how, when the Sabbath should begin and how it should be kept. And so they got together. Now, the Lord didn't give Ellen White a vision of what to do. Nor did they refer to some council, nor did somebody in authority get up and tell everyone else what to do, nor did they sit down and write a manual. What they did do is they came together in prayer and Bible study, and they say, Lord, what is the truth? Ellen White said at one of these meetings they had 48 people, and they had 48 different ideas, and a lot of them were German. And they were strong, and they were staunch. There were people who were willing to stand for their faith. They weren't going to ban an inch unless they knew it was truth. But you know when they got finished? They were all of one accord. They all believed the same thing and practiced the same thing. Amen. Not because somebody else had got up in authority and said, Brethren, we're all going to do this now. Let's get into line. No, because the Holy Spirit had guided them until they all understood the Bible together. I'm ask you, dear friend, you think God will do it again? Amen. I want to tell you if as churches we would get together and say, Lord... What is your will for our church? How are we to evangelize this city? How are we to spend our money? How are we, what kind of messages do we, should we have preached from here? How should we do everything that we're doing? I want to tell you, if we would have that spirit, we would see a change come into our churches, into our conferences, into all our work. Well, someday... That change is going to come. Someday that change is going to come. But it won't come without, a, without some people who are willing to be nothing. In fact, we've all got to be nothing. Jesus gives us the answer over here in Matthew 21. Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls in this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls it will grind him to powder. What the Lord is looking for today from every man, woman, and child, from every preacher and every layman, from every elder and every Sabbath school teacher, from every... 
Everybody, wherever they are, he's looking for people who will be broken on the rock and say, Lord, we're no longer going to try and strive for notice for first place. We're not going to be climbing the ladder anymore. That's a system that Satan began. But rather, we're going to seek to become your servants, your servant, and the servants of one another. We're going to seek to work together as brethren for the finishing of this work. We're going to yield ourselves to you. Come in, Lord, and take charge. That's not saying that there isn't the gift of administration. There is a place for administration. There are some people that know figures better than other people. There are some people that God gives the gift of preaching to. It may not always be the one that's ordained from the conference. It may be a layman. That's fine, whatever it is. There are those that God gives different gifts to. The Holy Spirit does. There is a place for some people to be doing one thing and some people another. He hasn't called us all to be doing the same thing. God may have called me to, you know, go and, and, and take care of the sick and shut in. In fact, we're all called to do some of that. He may have called me to do something He hasn't called you, and He may call you to do something He hasn't called me. But I want to tell you, friends, we're all to be working together as brethren. I want to tell you, the only people that are going to go to heaven are laymen. Nobody but laymen are going to get there. You know, over in 1 Peter 2, where it talks about the church being built up, it talks about the stone, how Jesus is the stone. And verse 9 it says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. This was the verse that Martin Luther championed when he said that, the priesthood of all believers were all priests. There's not just one up here in Rome and a few of his emissaries around. He says everyone is a priest. I want to tell you that's a message that needs to be preached again from the church. Amen. We're all priests. Amen. We have different functions and different abilities and different talents and different duties. But we're all brethren, dear friends. Amen. The priesthood of all believers, a holy nation, his own special people. You know what word that people is from in the Greek? It's one Greek word that is L-A-O-S. It says laos. The church is built up of laity. Jesus is the high priest in the sanctuary today. And he has made us all under shepherds and under priests, which means that we are all laymen in the Bible. That's what the Bible word for laos is. It's not until every one of us are willing to be laymen, dear friends, humble, working servants, layman servants, the women broken on the rock. Now God has called some to be missionaries, some to be pastors, and some to be all different things. But dear friend, when Jesus comes, we're all going to be united together with Jesus at the head of the at the, at the head of the church, all united together. I long for that day to come, don't you? I long for that day to come. I don't know how all it's going to happen, but I know what few of the ways it's going to happen. It's going to come by the preaching of the straight testimony. It's going to come by a lot of prayer. We're living in serious times. It's not time to be criticizing people. It's not never time for that. We don't need any criticism. 
But dear friend, it's time for us to be praying that God will take charge of the church and that He'll make us courageous enough to do what He calls us to do in humbleness and love. To preach a straight testimony in humbleness. To preach a straight testimony in love. And to start drawing people together in Bible study and prayer. Listen, dear friend, you can have a Bible study in your home. No one said you couldn't. There's nothing in the Bible that says you can't. You can pull people together in your home and start a prayer group. There's nothing that says you can't go out and start a little meeting on the Sabbath or wherever it is. You know, Ellen White says it in Australia, Australasian record. I was just reading this the other day. It's page 212. No, I think it's 213. The next page, about halfway down the page, right about the middle. There's three columns there. I think it's the middle column, about two-thirds of the way down. She says that every home is to be a church. Dear friends, God has a special place for you in the church. He has a special place for you. You know, it just took 12 men to reach out and start getting others who got others who got others to turn the world upside down in Jesus' day. You know, we have more than 12 here. And if everyone here would be fully consecrated to the Lord, you don't have to sit down and say, well, you know, when the conference office becomes converted, then God can work. No, you don't have to say that. That's the very thing we've been reading about. When we become converted, God can work. When we go out and give the message, God can work. When we take our individual responsibility, God can work. And dear friend, He is willing and waiting to work today. I say it's time for revival, don't you? And so the 1888 message, oh, I didn't read one thing. Might as well read this. She says that, where am I here? This Thing, this was written in 1901, has been continuing and renewed for the past 15 years or more, and God calls for a change. That goes back to 1886. It was this spirit of control that led to the fiasco of 1888. It was the thing that was never repented of, except for a little while between 1901 and 1903. But today again, God is calling for a change. I pray that it may happen in England, Great Britain, I'd like to see Great Britain become the great leading of the revival that will sweep the world. It could happen here. Happen here as well as anywhere. This is where John Wesley preached, where Charles Wesley preached, where Ridley and Latimer and Cramner and where Wycliffe and where Tyndale and all these people led out with the revival that spread throughout the world. A lot of these people long preceded Martin Luther. A revival started here in England that spread throughout the world. I'm telling you, it could happen again. It could happen with us right here. A revival could begin here that could spread throughout England and from here to the rest of the world. It could happen. It's time to happen someplace, isn't it? If not here, where? If not now, when? It's time for revival. Dear friend, there are three steps to revival. One is that we must be cleansed from sin. Two, we must learn to witness. Three, we must give the straight testimony. I pray that the revival may begin here. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, 
I pray that a revival might begin here. Here where it began once before, way back in the days of Wycliffe. I pray that we may realize that your arm is not shortened, your ear is not heavy, nor is your power limited. But right here, your presence and your spirit is hovering. And you're only waiting to fill us. We're the only people, Lord, that you have to use. Paul is dead. Wycliffe is dead. Martin Luther is dead. Ellen White's dead. All the disciples are gone. All the great men who have ever lived are gone, except us who are alive today. Lord, we're not much, but we pray that your spirit will use us. And there will be vessels that can be filled and can be used to finish this great work that's much greater than we are. Lord, may we be emptied of self. May we be emptied of self and may we not look to others to fill that place, but may we look to you. And may we allow you to come into our lives, into our churches, and may we allow you to once again become the ruling authority and the power so that we can experience Pentecost again and go home. We pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name, for his sake. Amen.